Uh, well, I don't know why I have Ephesians on the brain. Uh, maybe because I wish we were in Ephesians. Um, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting at verse 16. Hear the word of God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Kashi was only five years old when she was taken from her family and she was sold into forced labor to a wealthy family in Kolkata, India. She was confused. She was alone. Uh, She spent the next 10 years in this never-ending cycle of hard labor for this family and and all the while just longing for a childhood that she never had. Instead, Kashi faced frequent physical and verbal abuse, and that abuse left her feeling traumatized, ashamed, worthless. When she was 15, uh, things got even worse. She learned that her new family, this wealthy family, was actually connected to Calcutta's human trafficking industry, and that this would be her fate. She was sold a second time, this time to a brothel in the city where then she was sold repeatedly again and again, day after day, to men who would use her little body in a room that locked from the outside. And the reality is that there are millions of Kashis in the world today. An estimated 27.6 million people, that's over three New York cities of people, are trafficked worldwide and 27% of those are children. It's it's mind-boggling. Just so many children and women and men whose lives are stolen and abused and destroyed, and it's happening every day. What kind of a world is this? That's the question Kohelet, uh, the main character of Ecclesiastes, is asking. He has been, you remember, on this quest to discover the meaning of life, and he's tried everything he can. He's tried wisdom, and he's tried pleasure, and he's tried work, and he, he's just examined and explored everything under the sun, and he keeps arriving at the same conclusion that it's all, what is it? Do you remember the word? 
Hebel. It's not Hebel. It's this Hebrew word that means vapor. I mean, it's just, it is confusing, confounding, it's frustrating. It is a downright enigma. Last week, he led us up onto a kind of mountaintop from where we could get a a panorama view of everything that's out there, all of the good and all of the bad, um, all of all of the beautiful things, but also all of the befuddling things, like the holy and the horrible. But now he just wants to focus our attention on the horrible. He's saying, if you can bear it, look with me at the brokenness. And there is so much brokenness. And so his question about finding meaning, it persists, but now it persists with this new force. I mean, he is asking, like, what hope is there for a world when this world includes so many stories like Kashi's? How do we make our way in the world in the face of so much evil, so much injustice, so much oppression? You see, this is not like an abstract philosophical inquiry. Uh, This is not the exploration of some armchair critic. This is about life and death. This is about life and death. And so let's if we can bear it. Look more closely at our passage. Listen again to uh, verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And then jumping to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And so Kohelet, he's looking out over the world. And what does he see? Uh, He sees injustice. And he sees oppression. And he sees so many tears. And he sees no comfort. And uh, it's distressing. It's a distressing situation. It's especially distressing for Kohelet because as a member of the people of God, he knows that this is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, he's read in his scriptures, just as we have read in ours, that the God of Israel desires human communities to be characterized by profound justice. Because God wants every human being uh, to flourish, to experience what the Old Testament writers call shalom. Kohelet knows that's the way it's supposed to be, but when he looks out, he sure doesn't see that. And instead, he just sees like endless evil, endless injustice and oppression. He sees the poor taken advantage of, He sees the fruit of people's labor stolen. He sees cheats and crooks and con men just ruining people's lives and getting away with it. And and what really pushes Kohela over the edge is that the very people and institutions that should be protecting the vulnerable are instead taking advantage of them. And as a result, the oppressed have no recourse to help because the ones who should help them are themselves corrupted. They're the ones doing the oppressing. He says, in the place of justice. In other words, exactly in the place where justice is supposed to happen. Instead, I see wickedness. (coughs) Well, where is justice supposed to happen? I mean, there are a lot of ways we can answer that question. We could talk about, like, the courts. We could talk about different human institutions, different communities. But at least one place that justice is supposed to happen is among the people of God. Um, This community was to be a light to the other nations. It was to be a community of justice in which people are really treated as beloved image bearers and through which God works out his saving and healing and restorative purposes for the rest of the world. 
Um, but if you think about the Bible's big story, you remember that <coughs> even after God calls Abraham and creates this new human community that's meant to be a blessing to the nations, um, that the story takes a tragic turn because it turns out that God's people themselves succumb to injustice. Like God's people become a very part of the problem that they are sent out to help heal and correct. They know that the fast God has chosen, to use the words of Isaiah, is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, to share bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked to cover him, God's people know this, but they fail to do it. So if you read through the Old Testament prophets, you see again and again their call to take up the cause of justice on behalf of the low and the least and the last. And God's people just struggle over and over again to get it right. I mean, it'd be nice if we just had like one minor prophet just saying, hey, do this. And then there was a huge course correction and they did it. But no, it's just over and over again. I mean, it's over and over again the prophets have to keep coming and saying, hey, God loves justice. God wants God's people to be concerned about this. So Kohela is looking out, and not only does he see injustice, but he sees it precisely in the communities and institutions that should be modeling justice for the rest of the world. Now, in the face of all this injustice upon the earth, Kohelet shares his conviction, and it's, it almost sounds a little hopeful for a moment, he, his conviction in verse 17, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And, and so if you think about it, this connects back to the passage we looked at last week. There's a time for everything under the sun, and so Kohelet says there's a time for God to bring justice, I mean, presume, presumably uh, at some point in the future. But don't get your hopes up too much because what Kohela asserts about God's judgment in verse 17 is called into question by the very next verses, 18 through 21, in which Kohela basically says that death is waiting for all of us and there's no guarantee that our fate is going to be any different than the fate of the animals. Uh, basically, who can know? <laughs> and since we can't really know, maybe there's no hope in divine justice after all. Maybe you die and you go into the ground, and injustice gets the last word. And so at the end of our passage, Kohelet takes all of this in, and you can see he is totally overwhelmed. In light of all the injustice and oppression, he says this, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And do you see what he's saying, family? When I take it all in, when I look out and really have my eyes open to the world as it actually is, when I see the sheer scale of overwhelming injustice in the world, how oppression seems entirely unstoppable and how the powerful just keep oppressing, he's saying, I don't even wanna be here anymore. It'd be better not to be alive. It would be better not to have been born at all. And so he ends our passage in this really dark, really despairing place. And so where does that leave us? Hmm. Um, Kohelet does want to wake us up and to face the world as it actually is. Not the world 
as we wish it were, not the, not the tidy, neat worlds that we create in our systematic theologies, but just the world and all of its broken messiness. And, and that means really facing the complex realities of injustice and oppression that our world includes. Where does it leave us? We have been saying week after week, and let's say it together again if you've memorized it. What have we been saying? Ecclesiastes is true. It is true. Um, and because it's true, there's an invitation here for us to look where Kohelet looks and to see what he sees. For so many of us, uh, it is relatively easy to turn a blind eye to injustice. Some of us can arrange our lives in ways that insulate us from the horror of it. I mean, we can, we can kind of curate our lives so that uh, the only injustice we see is the injustice we want to see. And the only seeking of justice we do is usually in the form of like snappy social media posts. And, and Kohala is saying no. He, he's saying, uh, he is saying, open your eyes and really look at the world as it actually is. Now notice how nuanced his observations <laughs> Are. Like when he looks out at the world and sees the injustice that's out there, uh, let's see what he sees for a sec. Um, in our polarized political environment, you know, the right often reduces injustice to the personal actions of bad individuals. And the left often reduces injustice to problems with like systems and structures. But notice that Kohelet's observations just defy that simplistic categorization. He sees wicked people perpetrating acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so it is a personal problem that grows out of the evil in the human heart. And so if you are someone who tends to have like a really rosy, optimistic picture of human beings and who thinks if we could just, if we could just uh, tweak some systems and change some structures, well then justice would flow down like mighty waters. Kohala is saying no. He's saying, open your eyes. There are wicked people with power in the world who are eager to advance themselves by oppressing and exploiting the vulnerable. And at the exact same time, Kohelet observes that evil does not limit itself to the human heart. When Kohelet looks to the communities and institutions where he should find justice, instead he finds corruption and oppression. And so for Kohela, it is very much a social and systemic problem. If you're someone who tends to reduce injustice to a personal issue of the human heart, Kohela is saying, wake up. Evil is so much more pervasive and expansive than that. It's always looking for ways to embed itself in social structures and systems and institutions and in human communities. I mean, injustice is a really complex reality. I mean, think about Kashi's story. When she was trapped in the brothel, it was not just like her wicked enslavers that she was up against. It, it was also um, this uh, police force and the judicial system that wasn't doing anything about it and who maybe benefited financially from the human trafficking and were who, they, who therefore were invested in its continuation. Or in our own society and in our history, think about the long years of post-emancipation. Like after slavery was illegal, it was not only um, personal racial prejudice and bigotry 
the African-Americans faced, but it was corrupt institutions like the banking and housing industries that blocked them from loans and redlined them into unfavorable neighborhoods and kept them from developing generational wealth. And so if we were to ask Kohelet, like, is the injustice problem out there personal? Is it a problem with the human heart? He would say, yes, of course it is. And if we were to ask him, is this injustice problem social? And is it systemic? And is it affecting human institutions and communities? He would say, he would say yes, of course it is. See, let yourself look where Kohelet looks. Take in the full breadth of the brokenness and the depth of the darkness and all of its mind-boggling complexity and with all its tragic results. That's the invitation. Any takers? Ecclesiastes is true, but it's not the whole truth. We really do need more than just a careful examination of the world's injustice if we're, if we're to um, not wind up in a place where Kohelo winds up, where we just don't want to get out of bed in the morning, uh, where we would rather be dead or rather not to have been born at all. Um, we need more than just an examination of injustice. We need hope that the world's injustice will not have the final word. Kohelet isn't able to offer us that hope with any confidence. Um, but remember what he does say in verse 17. It's like he has this intuition that if there is hope for this problem of injustice, it is to be found in God's judgment. It is to be found in God's setting things right. And according to the Bible's bigger story, that intuition that Kohelet has is exactly right, which might sound surprising at first, because we usually don't think of judgment as this happy, hopeful thing to talk about. But the world that Kohelet sees, and if we see it with him, like it really is a world that cries out for judgment. And, and deep down, family, like don't you know that our world needs this? Don't you long with the psalmist for God to come and judge the earth? We've talked about this before, but remember that in the Bible story, judgment is really ultimately good news because it holds out hope, like real hope, that injustice and oppression and every other form of evil will finally be dealt with. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Uh, it also makes me think of that um, James Cone quote that uh, I should have pulled it up again, but we, we read this months ago, but but he, he's talking about um, how so often, especially in um, evangelical circles, we, we tend to think of wrath and love as being opposed to each other. And, and Cohn basically says, no, like, 
a God of love has to be a God of wrath. He says, he says, a God who isn't wrathful in the face of this world we have, this world full of injustice oppression, and oppression, a God who isn't full of wrath doesn't claim to do much liberating. See, you, a, a God who is a God of liberation, a God who is a God of justice, has to oppose injustice and oppression wherever it's found. Um, but the trouble is, what does that mean for you and me? I mean, the world desperately needs God's judgment. Judgment is the world's only hope. But what will it mean for the people of God who themselves have become part of the injustice problem? What will it mean for people like us who say we deeply care about justice, but who at the same time so often overlook the needs of the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the refugees, the poor and the oppressed? Like, how can we long for God's justice when we know there are ways we participate in injustice and in the ways that we actually benefit from injustice. How can we long for God's judgment when we recognize that the line separating justice from injustice actually doesn't run cleanly between the good guys and the bad guys, the righteous and the wicked, the powerless and the powerful, but right through our own hearts. See, without God's judgment, there's no hope for the world, but with God's judgment, what hope is there for you and me? Where does that leave us? With Kohelet? Better maybe never to have been born? No family. Um, it leaves us with Jesus. You know, Ecclesiastes is true, but it's not the whole truth. And from our vantage point, we are actually able to see more, much more than Kohelet could hope for or imagine. Because we see Jesus Christ. Yes, God comes to judge the earth, but how does he come? He comes as this one. He comes as Jesus. You know, to the extent that I anticipate God's coming judgment, and I'm only looking to myself, or I'm only looking to our community, or I'm only looking at our city, well, uh, I'm left with a great deal of confusion and anxiety and a little bit of dread, because I know that my personal record of doing justice is flawed, and I know that our congregation's record of doing justice is flawed, and I know that like the injustice problems in our city are, just seem intractable, like they're overwhelming. And the truth is, I don't know how to, I mean, I certainly don't know how to sort out the city of Richmond. I don't know how to sort out my own heart with this stuff. When I look to Jesus Christ, I'm reminded of exactly who it is who will come to judge and who will bring the perfect justice that I need and that our city needs and that the world needs. Karl Barth says it like this. He says, here is the judge from whom no one can flee, the crucified Christ, who as the sinless one proclaims and exercises the absolute sovereignty of grace. Our judge family is Jesus Christ. Uh, our judge is the one who has already submitted himself to judgment for us in our place. In the truest way, judgment day has already happened on the cross of Christ, which does not mean that there's no more judgment. And this does not mean that there won't be a final judgment. It just means that the final judgment will be brought about by this one, who is so eager to rescue us and so eager to rescue the world from evil and injustice and oppression that he has already lived for us, 
and died for us and been raised from the dead on our behalf. And so the final judgment ahead of us will reveal in full clarity what Jesus spoke on the cross. It is finished. As you come to this table, uh, you're invited to rest in that today. Rest in the comfort of knowing that there is coming one who will lovingly separate the good from the bad in your heart and in our congregation and in our city and in our world. Um, a day of justice really is coming when God will set the world right. Like we sang about this. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low and the promise is that God will somehow take everything that is twisted and broken about our world and heal it. Kohelet uh, could see no comfort for the oppressed. But the God we know in Jesus Christ is a God who identifies with the vulnerable, who takes up their cause, and who promises one day to wipe away every tear, to mend what has been broken, to repair what has been ruined. And, and so every time we gather around this table, what do we say? We say that we are proclaiming our risen Lord's death until he returns in glory. And in that is a prayer, come Lord Jesus. Like, come God of justice, come and heal us in our city, in our world. Set things right, set things right. And in the meantime, God has showed us what he desires and it is good. What is it? To do justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. And so we don't, as we wait for the return of, of the God of justice, we don't sit around twiddling our thumbs. We go about being the people of God right here, right now. We do little things with great love. We practice seeing each and every human being as a beloved image bearer for whom Christ died. We practice treating each and every human being with the respect and care befitting such inestimable worth. You know, Kashi's story didn't end in the brothel. A group of people committed to the way of Jesus, it's a group that some of you are familiar with, it's called IJM, Inter International Justice Mission. They, with the help of some righteous local officials and police, raided the brothel where Kashi was held captive and they set her free and they rescued many of the women who were captives with her. And, and this is what IJM shares about Kashi now. Following her rescue, Kashi moved into a loving aftercare home and began the long process of restoration. She participated in crucial trauma-focused therapy, built a strong relationship with her caseworkers, and even got to go to school for the first time in her life. You see, it's just, it's one person, um, but it is the kingdom of God breaking in. It is justice being done. Um, here's, here's what Kashi says in her own words today. She says, I will not have to be scared because of my past. I will hold my head high, always. I will not let it come down. Let's pray, and then we'll come to this table of grace.